0: quote a home and car bundle today at progressive.com progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates national average 12-month savings of 793 dollars by new customers surveyed who saved with progressive between june 2021 and may 2022 potential savings will vary canva
1: presents unexplained appearances it was an ordinary workday until
0: that presentation appeared out of thin air
1: also it's eerily on brand Hello, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Felix. I'm Raoui. I'm Rebecca. Hey, guys. I have a question for you. You saw that the oversight board of Facebook decided that the decision to ban former President Trump was justified at that point in time. How devastated would you be if you were banned
3: from social media? You know, Felix, I think I might be delighted. (laughs) Really? I have a Twitter account, but I've never (laughs) tweeted anything. And it's super stressful to imagine, like, what's the first tweet? And I'm not on Facebook, so I don't know. I think it would relieve me of some pressure. Would you miss any? No, I wouldn't miss a thing, although I'm not trying to run for president and so maybe my needs are different (laughs) (laughs) than president trump
1: how about you rebecca
2: all social media
1: all social media yeah
2: so i ask because i actually really enjoy being on linkedin
3: yeah oh the linkedin is that social media i didn't know that counted yeah yeah (laughs) you didn't tell me that oh now we're talking
1: (laughs) (laughs) i
2: mean it feels to me slower paced you don't have to put your heart into 128 characters yeah and it feels kind of more real.
3: Nothing bad happens to anybody on LinkedIn, as far as I yes. know. Right. Like basically people say, I like the thing that you did, and then you say, Thanks. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. It's sort of the most civilized of conversations. Well,
2: I mean, I tried being on aggressively on Twitter. Yeah. I was doing three or four a day. I was kind of trying to be in the swim. It is exhausting. Mm-hmm.
1: It's a lot of work. Yeah. 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 Speaking of work, we're towards the end of Q1 earnings, and we thought we would do an earnings round. Companies that we follow, organizations that have done amazing or maybe not so amazing things. Great idea, Felix. Let's do it. All right, earnings. Ravi, you brought a few companies. I did. I'd like to start with
3: Crocs. Oh huh. Like you know the rubber shoes?
2: You're going to start with rubber shoes, Robert. I'm
3: going to start with rubber shoes. Okay. And so Crocs, fascinating company in lots of ways. Crocs have been called the it shoe of the pandemic. And their earnings per share were a dollar forty-nine cents versus an expected 89 cents. Wow. Whoa. Whoa.
2: Okay, now I understand the focus on rubber shoes.
3: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is a thing. Their sails are going through the roof. They're getting ready to launch in a big way in the rest of the world, especially in Asia. So why? Do you have a sense, like, what they do? Yeah. Is
2: it just laziness? I mean, is this the same thing that's driving us all into yoga pants?
3: Yes. I think basically, <laughs> yes, Rebecca. It's <laughs> yoga pants for feet? Is yes. that what it is? <laughs> Evidently, the people who wear them find them incredibly comfortable. So is this a thing that's going to persist? Are we all going to be wearing rubber shoes around after the pandemic as well? Or is this a thing that's very specific to this moment?
2: So is this related to the changing fashion in trousers? I mean, skinny jeans are no longer in. Mm -hmm. The jeans in the magazines are all a bit more relaxed.
3: I think you're right. I think that's the question. Having gotten to a point in our lives during this very difficult, however many months it's been, it's either been like 100 months or 15 or something, (laughs) we want our feet to be comfortable. So this is how we feel comfortable.
1: That's such an interesting question, whether this push towards more casual appearances that felt exactly appropriate as long as you were at home whether that's going to persist or whether we will look back and say, oh, remember, we were slobs (laughs) for like just an unbelievable (laughs) period of time. And, you know, that time to rejoin civilization (laughs) and actually dress up when you leave your house. So I
2: predict, no, it's not going to last.
1: It's not going to last. I don't want
2: to buy stock in Crocs. And I'm reminded of a time that I was in a library, Looking at Books on How to Decorate Your House. And they had books from the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, 70s, 80s. And what was weird is that you'd look at the books and they were all kind of similar, you know, chairs, sofas, a little bit of difference in style and color, except for the 70s. The books about home decorating in the 70s looked as though aliens had come to Earth (laughs) and left behind like orange throw pillows that people were lying around on the floor and green velour drapes. I mean, it was extraordinary. And I think this moment is going to be like that.
3: I just was thinking about how we could test that. And I was thinking about a different company, which is Ralph Lauren. Hmm. If we could imagine what's going to happen to Ralph Lauren versus what's going to happen to Crocs, it would tell us this answer. We'll get a good test of these hypotheses about whether we're really just going to be in comfy clothes and rubber shoes or whether we're going to be in suits or ties or whatever.
1: Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Rebecca, what did you bring for us?
2: So... I bought a couple of companies that I'm deeply interested in. One is Danone, where the CEO was fired in March of this year. And people said, whoa, that firing is like proof that stakeholder capitalism doesn't work. Mm. Because he'd been a super champion of stakeholder capitalism. Mm -hmm. Danone makes essentially yogurt bottled water, Evian is their brand, and baby food. Mm -hmm. And about five years ago, the CEO announced, Mission 2020, we're going to transform Danone, we're going to make it healthy living. He went totally doubling down on so-called stakeholder capitalism. And Danone was going to serve healthy snacks and healthy products. Mm -hmm. He was the first company in France to become an entreprise de mission, Mm. And everyone said, "Whoa, you know, the first big essentially benefit corporation, which, you know, meant he was really committed to sustainability. And then investors started making a fuss. And they said, wait, 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 wait. What happened to growth? What happened to earnings? What happened to returns to investors? And in March, as I said, they fired him. And you know what's really amazing? The board fired him without having a successor lined up.
1: Wow. Mm. So the yeah.
2: investors must have thought something was really, really wrong. So I went to this quarter's earnings. You know, it's the first quarter without the CEO. What are they going to say about the company? Where are they going? And mm-hmm. they've kept the stress on health and the transformation of the business. And they lost. Sales fell about 9% in the first quarter. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a year-on-year comparison. So you can say, well, Mm -hmm. you know, the quarter one in 2020, people were still drinking bottled water, which they mostly drink when they're out, and now they're not out. But I was really struck. To me, this was not a story about investors repudiating stakeholder capitalism. So much of the rhetoric is around, are you stakeholder-oriented or are you shareholder-oriented? And the firing of Danone's CEO shows that the market is rejecting stakeholder capitalism. But I don't think that's what's happening at all. I think it's we like good managers who make their numbers and keep up with the competition. Mm -hmm. Unilever has way outperformed them. And so for me, this is a story about, yeah, you can be stakeholder-oriented, but you still have to know what you're doing.
1: How to manage. Yeah. Generally speaking, it's hard to imagine how you would be immediately rewarded by consumers if you are more socially responsible. And food, I always thought, is sort of the most immediate response to these kinds of efforts, because when the company says, you know, it's better produced and we understand the supply chain and we make sure there's no toxic element in your food, that seems like a value proposition that probably many of us will say, yeah, I actually pay Mm -hmm. a price premium. And then the further you go away from an immediate impact on consumers, you can see companies who do the right thing But it can't be this expectation that then magically you get this enormous price premium simply because you're now a company that thinks about the rest of the planet as well.
3: Now, Rebecca, are you worried we're going to learn the wrong lesson from this?
2: Oh, Rawi, that's exactly why I wanted to go back and look at the financials and read what the investors said. Mm-hmm. Because people have coded it as look at Emmanuel Faber, who was the CEO at Denon. He got fired. That means you should not take these risks. You shouldn't move in this direction. I think that's exactly the wrong lesson. Mm-hmm. It looks as though it's a management failure, not a kind of fundamental strategic stakeholder capitalism doesn't work sort of story.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: Felix, what do you got?
1: I brought in a set of companies... I guess we can call them payment gateways. Mm -hmm. The granddaddy is PayPal, but then companies like Square and Stripe. And we've spoken a lot about the winners of the pandemic. And it's obviously all the e-commerce companies that have brought in really good results. But very similar and not surprising, these companies are on fire as well. Mm -hmm. There are two dynamics that I find quite fascinating. The first one, and I think you see it best in PayPal's number, is the shift away from credit to debit cards. Mm -hmm. In part, it has to do with people being more careful, being more conscious, Mm -hmm. in particular in uncertain times. And then interestingly, the stimulus checks hit your bank account, and that frees up some capacity to now use debit cards more often. And just because of how payment works, when people use their debit cards, that is so much cheaper for PayPal. Mm-hmm. You see it in their operating margins that now expanded by multiple points to almost 30%.
2: So Felix, if I shift my PayPal account to a debit card, will PayPal give me a rebate?
1: <laughs> I'm afraid. that's uh, <laughs> This is what ends up on their P&L, oh. not so much in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> the second part that I find fascinating in this sector is The companies start in very different places, right? PayPal... In particular, once it's owned by eBay and before it gets spun off, it's basically in the business of making sure that eBay's merchants have an easy way to make people pay for the products Mm -hmm. that they buy from eBay. Square is really, you might remember, it's like for smaller merchants who use their iPhone to process their products. And they have this dongle that they can stick in. That's what I thought it was. And I think that's still a big part of their business, but that's where they start. And when you think about the pandemic effects and how many small businesses had to completely close down, mm-hmm. that was a much more problematic sector of the economy to be in because many of her customers just couldn't be open. And then Stripe, again, e-commerce oriented, but e-commerce 2.0. Mm-hmm. It's actually two brothers who started it. They were just really annoyed how difficult it was to do credit card processing for their own businesses. And it's now the most valuable privately held startup in silicon valley it's probably worth about a hundred billion dollars they added about half a million new customers as a result of the pandemic simply because so many people had to move online but now what happens is that the competitive overlap between these companies grows almost day by day they start in different corners of the payments world. In the beginning, you think, yeah, they're doing really different things. And then before you know it, PayPal buys Venmo, which is in the peer-to-peer processing space, which was a big part of what Square did when they started an app called Cash App. Cash App was peer-to-peer transactions. And so they're overlapping there. Square buys Weebly, the company that helps you set up a website. Mm -hmm. And that now competes with Stripe. And so you're seeing sort of an increasing overlap. And it's almost like competitive advantages shift away from what you had to do to be a player in the first place towards sort of the secondary advantages. I saw one really interesting example. Stripe now uses machine learning to predict when credit card payments or debit card payments wouldn't go through. Hmm. And one of the most common reasons is that, you know, you got a new credit card in the mail. And of course, you didn't bother to tell the 1800 (laughs) merchants that you have a new credit card. (laughs) So they started automatically updating credit card information that they got their hands on. So enabling many more transactions, which is worth millions of dollars for individual merchants. So we have this really vibrant space with A number of players who you look across the spectrum and you end up saying, aren't they all doing exactly the same thing? And now it really matters how well you do it.
3: That's super interesting.
1: It's really
2: interesting. Will they start to compete with Visa and MasterCard?
1: The core Square service is really much more of a complement than a substitute for the credit card. In fact, many small merchants who couldn't Mm -hmm. accept credit cards to begin with, they now can. But there's... Definitely more competition among these companies in that they expand in similar ways. And then the latest craze for all of these, Bitcoin. Everybody now accepts Bitcoin and that's a billion dollar revenue stream for most of these services. So everything is moving and everything is moving in really interesting ways. Fascinating. All right, we'll take a break.
3: So, Ravi, you have another one? I do have another one. I've been thinking of companies that are metaphors for where we're headed after the pandemic. How about HelloFresh?
1: Oh, okay. So,
3: HelloFresh is a German-owned meal kit delivery company. And there are a bunch of these, Blue Apron and so on. But boy, have they been killing it during the past year. Their customer base is up 74%. And so the question is... Now that we've gotten used to cooking at home, and now that many, many people have gotten used to cooking at home with kits that get sent in the mail with all of the ingredients right there, just make it super, super simple, Mm -hmm. is that something that's going to persist? Or are we going to just go back to what we were doing before?
1: I have to say I'm a little skeptical. (laughs) (laughs) And mostly because when Blue Apron and all these other meal kit companies first appeared, We thought, oh, my God, this is going to change everything. (laughs) And we were so optimistic that this would be a really valuable, amazing business. Mm -hmm. And then it was just so hard to get to profitability. And I can completely see how the pandemic would help, would give you a big boost. But I don't know if this is sustainable. Yeah,
2: Let me take the other side. Okay. So I've actually used the meal kits. Oh. And I've really liked them for two reasons. The first is you don't have to think about what you're going to cook tonight. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know about you, but I have like seven recipes I can do without <laughs> thinking about it.
1: <laughs>
2: and when I stumble downstairs to cook dinner, I'm going to make one of those seven, you know. And, uh, and so it's great. You get these kind of exotic things that show up. And there's just the right amount of ingredients. And you make it. And it actually tastes quite good. Hmm. But I stopped doing them. It comes with a ton of packaging. And you think, well, that's okay a few times. But day after day after day, I started to feel like a waste-generating machine. Right. And then after a while... You kind of get a sense of what their 15 recipes are.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think one of the questions will be for multi-person households bigger than two persons. Will this be an efficient, cost-effective way to eat more healthily that will persist compared to the alternatives? And... I haven't done the math to see whether like this is actually less or more expensive than buying your own ingredients. But that seems to me like one of the big questions, which is if these multi-person households are going to eat in more often because they've gotten used to cooking, is this part of the answer? Even if you like cooking, if you get Mm -hmm. satisfaction from the fact that at least
1: a part you did well. I think chopping is just no one's favorite part of cooking. <laughs> and so It might give you a little bit of an advantage in that you still get to cook. You feel good about the fact that you cook. And interestingly, when you see, say, in Whole food stores, every now and then you will encounter a vegetable that has not been dealt with, but much more common now, that you find everything chopped, right? Oh. I think it's the same realization that The price premium, the efficiencies that come with mass chopping are Uh just really hard to compete with as an individual household. I don't know if that's good enough to keep
3: the (laughs) business alive, but it's definitely value in my book. But I think, Felix, if you think about chopping in a different way, what if chopping is your opportunity to have the first glass of wine? I don't need an excuse for that (laughs) first glass of wine. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Let's keep going. So, what else do you have?
1: Do you remember the game Farmville? No. No? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, there was a game Farmville. There is a game Farmville, actually. And it was the rage at one point. Mm-hmm. They built massive audiences and the the game involves growing virtual
3: vegetables. Oh,
2: my son got obsessed with it.
3: Yes. Yeah. It he was, would play
2: with his friends. It was the thing. Absolutely. It yeah. was the thing. Yeah, yeah. Where
3: was I? What was I doing during this time? <laughs> <laughs> we'll that at a different I time. I have no idea.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you must have been hiding pretty far away. So the company is Zynga. They had, not surprisingly, a pretty good time during the pandemic. Revenue grew very quickly and is up about 70% compared to last year. But they're losing money, so it's not a big success story. What was interesting about that earnings announcement is that they bought a company called Chartboost. And Chartboost is essentially an in-app programmatic advertising and monetization platform. So the way this works is if you develop a game, you can implement Chart Boost and then the company will observe what your users do and they will collect that information and they will make it available to other people who develop online games. And it solves one of these issues that is really quite significant because there's so many new games all the time. And when you think about your experience on the app store, if you're looking for a new game, is really not great, right? It's search, which already presupposes that you know what to type into the search box. Mm. The descriptions of what you actually will experience if you download any one of these games are not super, super helpful. And so new companies, new games really have a hard time finding an audience. And Chartboost is fantastic for that because they allow game companies to show in-game advertising that is now directed at people who love to play online games. And we know what they play, and so it's just almost like a match made in heaven. It observes about 700 million users. Oh, wow. And it's in tens of thousands of games. Wow. So it's a really big deal. The part that I found most interesting is why at this moment in time and why do you buy a company that provides a good service but you know you might as well just have a contractual relationship with them like why do you need to own them and the background is of course apple's privacy rules the moment apple makes it difficult for apps to share data across apps because they will ask you you know oh, you fire up some online game and will ask you oh do you want that game to have access to all your other data. We don't know because it's so recent, but at least a reasonable assumption is that many people will say, no, I don't. And so this is now the attempt to bring personalization, to bring data inside the big companies. Mm-hmm. And Zynga is actually not the only one. Applovin is a competitor to Zynga. They just bought this ad tech company, Adjust. Same idea. They're essentially trying to build walled gardens that have their own programmatic advertising platform inside the walled garden because you can no longer share data across applications as easily as you used to.
2: So Felix, I'm still stuck at a sentence that you just airily pronounced, which was tens of thousands of games.
1: How do they
2: reach the customer?
1: It's the usual media industry kind of problem that you have an incredible long tail. Right. There're lots of clones obviously, you know, versions of a popular game where someone else tries to offer some mini variation on what's already available. But I'm sure there are also really good ideas, good games that just never make it because they can't get anyone's attention. Mm -hmm. So we can target the advertising. It's sort of a closed ecosystem to begin with. Uh And now that you bring it inside Zynga, that is super powerful. And I think the only really, really interesting question, and Zynga was asked in the earnings conference, What's the response of everyone else? So are you still going to share your data with Chartboost the moment you know Mm -hmm. that Chartboost is owned by Zynga? And Zynga, in most instances, will probably be a competitor. So it could be that this actually is the future of programmatic advertising. We're essentially using first-party data, and then we have integrated ad platforms that allow us to collect data elsewhere because those platforms are integrated elsewhere on the web. And it's this combination that really makes targeted advertising super helpful. Mm -hmm. Or are these investments where we try to bring ad platforms inside companies only then to discover that the competitive response will be, oh, now that Chartboost belongs to one of my competitors, I'm actually not going to share data. And I think it's a little too early to say. Mm. Thanks,
3: Felix. That's a really, really good one. Rebecca, you have another one, right?
2: I do. I have one more, and it's sort of like my first one, but I think really interestingly different. So I want to talk about BP. The new CEO of BP, a man called Bernard Looney, announced in uh, February of 2020 that BP was going to go to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And they're an oil and gas company. Now, when you look under the hood, what that meant is that their operations were going to go to net zero. And then they were going to try and reduce the carbon intensity of what they produced by 50%. But still, I mean, this is a massive commitment if you're an oil and a gas company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's essentially saying you're going to change the entire structure of your core business. You're going to sell half of the oil and gas you did, and somehow you're going to make it up in wind or solar or hydrogen or something. Initially, the investors hated it. His stock price dropped 4% the day he made this announcement. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then I went to look at the other oil companies. And, Rawi, maybe you already know this, but when you actually start reading Exxon, Chevron, Shell, they're all talking about switching away from carbon. They're all investing in billion-dollar projects in hydrogen and wind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The investors are all talking about the carbon transition. Mm -hmm. I had not appreciated how deeply this has begun to sink into the everyday conversation about what's going to happen to these energy companies.
3: Is there some element of this that is just moving the carbon emissions upstream and downstream and not in the core operations of the business? We're not doing the carbon intensive stuff. But the firms from which we buy are, and the people who buy our products are. And so we're getting toward neutral. It's just not we're doing it ourselves.
1: For
2: sure, this is a big issue, but it's relatively easy to get a feel for it. Uh So the trick is to look at what a firm is promising on so-called scope one and scope two emissions. That's the carbon they're generating to make their own operations go. And then there's scope three emissions, which is what's happening in the supply chain or downstream. And- what's the role
1: of BP's history here, Rebecca? Remember Beyond Petroleum yeah. was their motto. And then I think deep water, the oil spill, what was it, yeah. 2010 maybe, somewhere around there, completely ended this, right?
2: You should read The Investor's they are so jumpy about this because they think they've seen this movie before.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) so do I. (laughs) And it really didn't go very well. And so I actually
2: have enormous respect for Mr. Looney because he's a BP insider. He came up through the operations. He lived through Deepwater Horizon. Yeah. He knows that everyone is skeptical as heck.
1: That is very interesting to me that sometimes doing something that seems difficult doing something that seems challenging in particular given the history of the company somehow it gives it more credibility i think
2: that feels exactly right to me standing up and give fluffy speeches when the whole industry is you know oh we're all going healthy in some ways it doesn't carry the credibility of the ceo standing up and saying i know you've heard this before yeah i know we fell flat on our face Yeah. I'm going to try again.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's an interesting paradox. Yeah. It's, That's super yeah. interesting. Super interesting.
3: Yeah. 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 And we have picks, of course. Ravi, what do you have for us? I have something about which I feel very passionate, actually. Oh, nice. So there is... Uh, contemporary composer. His name is Max Richter.
2: You like Max Richter too? (laughs) Max Max Richter Richter. is
3: awesome. So (laughs) he is what is known as a neoclassical composer. So he's uh, postmodern, minimalist, but uses classical instruments and Classical themes and structures. And I'm not a music person, but I'm just totally fascinated by what he's done. So, and anybody who's watched any movie in the past 10 yes. years <laughs> has heard some Max Richter. Yeah. Just gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. A lot of violin, a lot of piano. So, I will recommend Max Richter generally, but specifically. There's a piece that was released, I don't remember exactly when, but it's called Vivaldi Recomposed. Oh, okay. And it is Vivaldi's Four Seasons, literally recomposed by Max Richter. And so Max Richter took the composition that is Four Seasons and made it into something that is very Max Richter. And my understanding is that he discarded about 75% of the original Four Seasons composition, Mm -hmm. kept 25%. And the parts that he really liked, he looped and phased in a new way. And so it's very identifiably... Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Like as soon as oh, you, you hear can it,
1: tell when you listen to it, yes, oh, you recognize absolutely.
3: It. As soon as you hear it, you're like, "This is Vivaldi's Four Seasons." Uh-huh. Except it's not. Yeah, I don't really know what's missing. I definitely know it is Four Seasons, and it's just gorgeous. Interesting. And I love, love listening to it. Fantastic. Mm. Rebecca, what
1: do you have for us?
2: So I'm going for a cookbook. It's called Supernatural Simple oh. Whole Foods Vegetarian Recipes for Real Life by. Uh, great cookbook writer called heidi swanson and it meets my criteria for cookbooks i can make the recipe in 30 minutes Mm -hmm. i don't have to get any exotic ingredients and the food tastes great that's my criteria (laughs) and a little bit different you know a little bit unusual so i bought the cookbook came home first recipe mushroom salad You're thinking mushroom salad, really?
3: That's what I'm thinking, exactly. Exactly, I can
2: see you thinking it. (laughs) But no, this is spring onions and lime juice and paprika and sautéed mushrooms and... Can we have this again soon, Rebecca?
3: Really? I think wow. that sounds great, Rebecca. And the last cookbook you recommended yeah. was so good. Oh. So I went out and bought it. It was like the four seasons of...
2: The four seasons of pasta. The, the four seasons Same of pasta. Same criteria. Yeah. The food really is really great. good. It's a little bit different. It's not that hard to make. Going to try it. That's what this cookbook is too. So take a look. Great.
1: It's funny. I have a culinary recommendation also. Do you two have ponzu sauce in your... Fridge? Who do you think I am? Of course I
3: have ponzu sauce in my fridge. And I'm not joking. Yes, I do. <laughs> what, what,
2: what, 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 no, no. How do you spell it?
3: P-O-N-Z-U.
2: I do not have ponzu <laughs> sauce in my fridge.
1: It's citrus juices with soya sauce, mirin. It's tart, tangy, sweet, all at the same time. And I recently made this dish that paired scallops with ponzu sauce. hmm And it was just the most amazing combination. Again, it's something that you can make, well, if you leave the scallops raw, you make it in 30 (laughs) seconds or so. (laughs) If you cook them, it's four minutes, but... There's something, I don't know, when you stumble across combinations of ingredients that that are just great. I am
3: getting so right for one another. It was really like an amazing revelation. That
2: sounds easier than a cookbook. I'm going for the ponzu sauce.
3: (laughs) Yeah. You can dip dumplings in ponzu sauce. You can dip an old shoe in ponzu sauce and it'd be pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) So
1: thank you for listening. This was After Hours from the HBR Podcast Network.